0: Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decides through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, And the child's father and mother were amazed what what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to the mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you,
2: Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, these familiar words uh, of the story of Jesus, that you would help us to hear them in fresh ways and help us to know how we might be a community that celebrates our Savior. So be with us, we ask in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. So uh, Merry Christmas to all. We're still sort of in that space, right, of celebrating God's gift to us of Jesus with the birth of Jesus. Uh, So we're six days into Christmas season at the moment. And it's a time when Christians around the world are just very focused on the birth story of Jesus, on his coming to earth, uh, God's fulfillment of his ancient promise in which he is born into our world of brokenness and injustice and experiences its pain alongside of us. It's a remarkable moment. We celebrate this every single year, right? It circles back over and over again. And it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. We still celebrate it, right? So whether you look on your life story or you look on the collective story of humanity and you see the pain that's in the world or the pain that's a part of your own life, or whether you're in a moment of joy and celebration and laughter, or whether you're sort of prone, as we were confessing just a few moments ago, that when you hear the promises of God, you spiral towards cynicism wondering if these things as grand as they are could ever possibly come true we circle back to this story of the birth of Jesus over and over again because we're trying to be a community of people that are holding on to God's presence on to God who has acted in our world in a certain way in the birth of Jesus his life his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and we want our lives, whatever our circumstances, to be framed principally by the hope that we have in Christ. It's an enormous hope, isn't it? Um, on the one hand, there's something we need to acknowledge that it's, it's common. If you were to go into any cultural setting or any family across the face of the earth, you would find that almost everyone desires To live in a world that's thriving or a world that is characterized by justice and goodness and beauty and truth and love. Everyone desires that. The uniqueness of Christianity is just this, that God situates this common hope in the birth of this child, Jesus. And This morning, we're looking at a particular episode around the birth of Jesus, the story of Simeon and Anna as they encounter the baby Jesus when Mary and Joseph bring him for dedication and for circumcision. So let's think about this story for a moment and what it might have to say about our own story with God and with ourselves. Um, So Simeon, Er these four characters, so first of all, the the characters in the story, right? Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna, what are they doing? I think one of the the really interesting things to me about this particular text is that they're doing ordinary stuff. They're not, um, this is not an extraordinary moment. They are simply practicing their life of faith. That's all they're doing. Uh, And yet, it becomes a space in which God shows up in a dramatic way, of course, right? So, here they are practicing their faith, right? They're doing what ordinary followers of God would do in their day. Mary's coming. They're coming to present a sacrifice following the birth of their child, right? A purification. They're coming to dedicate Jesus. They're coming to circumcise Jesus. These were the habits of faithful people inside of Israel. And that's all that's going on here in this particular moment. They're simply showing up in the ordinary spaces that followers of God would show up. And the same thing could be said for Simeon and Anna as well. In one sense, like Mary and Joseph, they're simply doing the kinds of things that persons of faith have always done. Uh, Simeon is described here as a righteous man, uh, a devout man. In other words, he's a man of prayer. He's someone who is conversant with God. Uh, He lives this conversational life with God, and the Spirit of God rests upon him, we're told. Uh, He's very old, He's apparently old enough that he's at least ready to die and now feels released unto death because he's seen Jesus, right? But he's old and he understands that God will allow him to see the Messiah before he passes, Anna is described as a prophet, an interesting description for her. Uh, She is another person, we could say, on whom the Spirit of God rests. She's also associated with the temple, as Simeon is. She's a widow for 84 years. Now, if she married at the ripe old age of 14, which might have been common in her particular moment, and she's widowed seven years later at the ripe old age of 21 years, she's about 105 years old. She is an old woman. Simeon, an old man. And yet this old man and this old woman are persons that God has allowed to behold the consolation of Israel. In other words... They know and they're waiting for the promise of God, and in this particular moment, while they're waiting for God to show up in their world, they're brought into an experience of the story that is beginning to unfold in the person of Jesus. These are people, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna, that very simply take God seriously, and they do the things that faithful people do. They pray, they fast, they offer sacrifices, they show up at the temple space where heaven and earth meet. Simeon and Anna are these obscure individual people that are brought in to this collectively to the story of Jesus. Ordinary practices of faith, ordinary practices of faith, showing up, reading scripture, going to church, praying, fasting, and so on are the ordinary spaces in which God meets his people. The ordinary spaces in which God meets his people. Now, second, both are prophetic in a sense. We're specifically given the title prophet for Anna, but they're both doing prophetic things. A prophet is someone that would frame our lives, our reality, in terms of those things that God has said or spoken. And in other words, A prophet is someone in our world at the time, but also even now that begin to cast a reframing of all of life in terms of who God is, his presence and what he's done and what he promises to do. And So here we want to look at the words that are specifically spoken by Simeon because they are the words that Luke records for us as he seeks to frame how Mary and Joseph and now us understand the life of this child. Look at them again. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon, as he's just doing something that he has done week after week after week after week, sees this particular child Jesus and he grasps his uniqueness he is understanding of his unique space in that which his God is doing he refers to him as the consolation of Israel Jesus is only a baby right Mary and Joseph are themselves obscure people they're not um, they're not the kinds of persons that you might have expected to give birth to Messiah right they're not Those parents, they lack pedigree that the world would honor and celebrate, but there they are showing up, and there they are with the baby Jesus, and Simeon discerns the reality of who Jesus is. He is the consolation of Israel, and Simeon says, now I'm released because my eyes have seen the salvation of God. Here at this very early moment in the life of Jesus, he understands who Jesus is by an act certainly of God's spirit. And Simeon then begins to enlarge our own imagination around the salvation that God is bringing. It's interesting that he focuses not so much on the expectations that maybe your ordinary Israelite in this particular moment would have been expecting. In other words, they were an occupied territory. Remember, we've rehearsed this over and over again, that they were a community of people, God's people, that were occupied by the Roman Empire. And when most people were to say, what does it look like uh, to sort of experience salvation or would experience the consolation of Israel, what would that look like? What would it look like? Freedom. It would look like liberty from the oppressive uh, sort of regime of Rome. But what Simeon seems to focus on here is that the consolation of Israel is also the consolation not just of Israel, but the whole world. In other words, God is unlocking an ancient promise that he made to Abraham to bless all the nations in him, to bring all of the world into a shared, conversive life with God. Simeon says that is unfolding in the person of who Jesus is. Israel's consolation is the consolation of the whole world. Salvation is bigger than release from the Roman oppression. It is for all people over the face of the earth to be released from their oppression of injustice, of abuses of power, of their own restless stories, whatever those stories may be. Jesus will be the core, the key, the centerpiece of everyone's story. At least that's what Simeon seems to understand About Jesus. Salvation comes through Jesus alone, but comes through Jesus alone for the sake of the world. There's nothing tribal about that which God is doing. Jesus is the desire of nations, not just one nation or people. All our hopes and dreams are met in Him this night, right? Simeon gives us a clue as to how Jesus will unite and divide the peoples of the world, right? And he gestures toward Mary's own suffering and life as she lives with and encounters the story of Jesus, particularly perhaps his suffering. Notice what he says. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon says that Jesus' story is central to all that God is doing, and people will react to Jesus in one of two ways. They will encounter him, and they will encounter the story of his life in such a way that they rise with him. In other words, they begin to understand how what God is doing in Jesus is also central to what God wants to do in them. Or, They will fall because of Jesus. They'll stumble over Jesus. They'll be crushed by Jesus in a sense because they will not want to give up their own sense of story, their own sense of self, or their own way of discovering a consolation in our sad world. Those are the two kinds of responses to Jesus that Simeon begins to understand and talk about. In verse 35, he says, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. This is an interesting and curious thing to think about right when you look through the gospel story so here we are at luke right at the very beginning of the story that he's writing about Jesus's life. And as you were to keep reading Luke, or if you were to keep reading in John or Matthew or Mark, one of the things that you discover about all of Jesus's interactions with people is that there's this exposure that happens for them, right? And sometimes that exposure leads them to what? To rise up with Jesus. And sometimes that exposure leads them to sort of put their hand up to Jesus and resist Jesus, right? So you know, Just think about a couple of stories the woman at the well, uh, John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he stops at the well at the height of noon, and he encounters a woman who is described, who we come to find out and understand is an immoral person. In other words, she's lived a life of just of sexual promiscuity in such a way that has left her, what, alienated from her community itself. So in other words, she lives this life of hiding her story. So she's At high noon, at the well, and there Jesus is encountering her and interacting with her and asking her questions, which surprises her, because why? What would a faithful Jewish person, a male at that, have to do with a person like me? Why are you talking to me? And as she talks to Jesus, Jesus begins to unfold these questions of worship and who are the true worshipers of God and what kind of worshiper is God seeking. And Jesus begins to describe her story to her in such a way that this woman then returns to her village and begins to tell everyone around her about who Jesus is. What's happened in that little episode? Except that she's encountered Jesus' exposure of herself in a way that completes her that leads her into a very new space with her own story and with her own people. She returns to her community as someone who now speaks of Jesus. In other words, she's rising with Jesus. Think about Luke or Mark's description of the rich young ruler, another Israelite in this case, who has lived a life of faithfulness, moral faithfulness, right? Because when he describes the law, he describes himself as relating to all of God's standards with sort of a kind of perfection but he's curious as to whether or not he will be included in the kingdom that God is bringing. He still lives with a restless heart. In other words, he's curious, he's questioning, he wonders if he's a part of that which God is doing. And so the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he simply asks the question, you know, how do I know? How do I know that I rest with God? How do I know that I'm a part of what he's doing? How do I know I'm a part of his great future? They talk about the law. He describes his obedience. And then Jesus looks on him in love and exposes the heart. He says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. In other words, Jesus discerned in this particular man that he leaned into his accomplishments as a human being, his possessions, his wealth, his vocational accomplishments perhaps. He leaned into those things as his consolation. What Jesus invites him to is to see Jesus as his consolation, his peace, his security. So you read through the stories of the Gospels, and you're always encountering this kind of exposure, and some people welcome the exposure and see his story as completing them, and other people sort of insist on holding on to their own stories, their own life as it is, as they have it, and they resist God. They fall over Jesus Simeon reminds us in this season when all people are gathering to the nativity the stories of the nativity to behold Jesus that the more important thing is this question of Jesus is beholding us when he looks on your life who does he see what does he see what does he see about your heart what does he see about your consolation how does he understand how you are putting the meaning of life together? Does it include him or does it exclude him? That's the question that I think Simeon ponders as he looks on this baby Jesus. Some will rise, some will fall. How will we relate to Jesus? When you encounter him, you either begin to see how your deepest longings for peace and happiness are met in him, or you hold on to your own way of making life work without him. Like Simeon and Anna, we are invited into a space of rest because we behold the consolation of Israel and the story of Jesus. We're drawn into that story that God is telling and that God will finish. Let me finish up this way, just a couple of things. How ought we to respond to this story? I think there are a couple of things. We're a church community. We've talked over the last year about our formation, in other words, our discipleship. What do disciples do? What does it mean for us to do things that form us as Christians, as followers of Jesus? And there are these ordinary practices that we're encouraging us to put on, and they include things like just regular reading of Scripture, because why? It's in the reading of God's Word that He meets us, Or we talk about regularized practices of prayer. In other words, am I becoming devout? Am I becoming someone who is conversant with God, that I live in steady communication with God? We could talk about practices of generosity. We can talk about practices of mission. We can talk about practices of community. In other words, relationship. Am I in the kinds of human relationships where we are helping each other reframe our lives in light of who God is. In other words, we practice a kind of prophetic utterance to one another. We listen to one another in spiritual ways, and we seek to help each other reframe our lives. Just ordinary practices of faithfulness. Because these are the spaces that God throughout time has met with his people and helped us live in our circumstances, whether they're moments of joy or sorrow, connecting the dots of our lives to the story that he is telling in the person of Jesus. They're places in which we actually have the kind of exposure to Christ that helps us grow up with our own story. And we do all of these things for one simple reason, that he is the Savior that beholds us. He gazes upon our lives. He sees us. And when he sees us as broken as we sometimes feel in ourselves or as put together as we sometimes want to feel about ourselves, Jesus looks on our lives as complex as they may be, and he never, ever averts his gaze. And that's the space that he invites us to make very simple decisions about how we will gaze upon him. Will we rise into the reality of his story, or will we cynically, or will we reject his story in some way? The story of Simeon and Anna. It's familiar. It's a story that God invites us to inhabit as we behold our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words and what they might mean for us, that you would meet us so that we would understand that you look on our lives and you behold us you see us. We pray that as we are seen, we would see the glory of Jesus. Would you meet us as we continue our time of worship this morning, and would you help us to be persons that respond in faith rather than unbelief? We ask in Jesus name. Amen.